0: And I I try not to find, you know, a stereotype of entrepreneurs that I think will be particularly successful, because I think that has historically, anyway, paved the way for a a real lack of diversity within within (laughs) founders, because I think if you say, oh, that was successful Mm -hmm. in the past and we want to emulate that, then you end up investing in the same types of people.
1: Hey, listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors and entrepreneurs who share their hard earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today, we get to hear from Yi Jin Chao. At the time of recording, she was an investment principal at EON, one of Europe's largest operators of energy networks and energy infrastructure for 50 million customers along with their corporate venture capital arm Future Energy Ventures based in Silicon Valley. This was recorded towards the end of 2021. It wasn't long ago, but the world has rapidly changed. But the imperative remains the same. This episode has a little bit of everything from learning about working in Silicon Valley, what it's like to be a venture capitalist, and what it entails, and how corporate venture capital operates and invests. Along with this, we have a deep discussion around the energy space, the first part of the episode discusses Yijin's fascinating background. The second part covers the VC section and corporate venture capital with the last part being the deep dive in energy. Feel free to skip around to each different chapters or parts, depending on your interests. It's more important than ever to have more funding, talent, and discussions in the space. Let's dive in and find out why. Yijin Chow, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. So today with us, we have Yijin Chow, who is currently an investment principal at Eon, is that correct? How do you say it?
0: Yeah, it's Eon. It's a German entity. And then the venture team itself, we call Future Energy Ventures.
1: Ventures, yes. And you've been uh, working there since 2019. But originally, you were born in Malaysia, correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. From the same place as you, I guess.
1: No, I'm I'm born from New Jersey.
0: Oh, oh, right. Okay. So we're trading places.
1: (laughs) We are are trading places. I've been in Asia for the past 11 years or so. Um, wow, that's yeah. I met Yini, uh, your sister, who how, how I hardly know you. I met her yeah. through a mutual friend by working in the startup space and this kind of thing. Um, you were born there, but Yuni was born in the UK. How much time did you spend in Malaysia?
0: Yeah, I was there until about eight, and then moved to the UK. We were back and forth for a few years, and then uh, went to university in the US, and then was. Again, back and forth between the UK and the US then and currently um, on the west coast of um, America. So typically in San Francisco, but since it's COVID at the moment, we moved to Seattle and have been living here for about a
1: year. Okay, well, you have to clarify this for me because everyone in the media, like the media always just loves to over exaggerate. And I've I've heard different stories from people in the Silicon Valley area. Mm. Are there a lot of people actually moving out? And like how substantial is that? And is it living up to the hype? Do you not regret your move or do you love it?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I, I would say certainly people did move out and, and pretty drastically across COVID. Um, I think a lot of that is temporary or I think people hope it's temporary. Okay. So I think as, as things start to open up again, people would be moving back to Silicon Valley. But certainly when I was still there at the end of last year, you know, a lot of the space was very quiet, apartment rent prices were mm. dropping like they've never seen before. Really? Uh Yeah. I mean, our, our rent for our apartment dropped almost 40% um, Wow! Before, before COVID to to after COVID. Yeah, which is really crazy, but also crazy that San Francisco was so expensive to begin with. Um, yeah, correct. And we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm curious how the remote working phenomenon will play yeah. out, whether people will start to push people back in the office. but for the time being, anyway, it's, it's not quite what it used to be, for sure.
1: But there's, there's two things there, right? So one, one is the narrative is that there's a housing crisis in California. It's just not enough housing supply. But at the same time, you're telling I'm hearing from you that it seems that it became more affordable temporarily or just so you think that once things normalize, like, I mean, you seem pretty settled in, in Seattle, right? So you're <laughs> telling me you don't love your life. You want to go back or are you are going to stay in Seattle?
0: it's it's really tricky i would say um i think san francisco is still certainly the place to be so from a professional point of view you still have berkeley stanford loads of startups i think most startups who want to start a company would think very seriously about being in san francisco despite the cost um all the vcs are there um or at least have some kind of presence there and it's a huge hub so i think that kind of network effect is hard to replicate in other places but at mm. the same time, I think as you said and actually as I've listened before in, you know, other other podcasts that you've hosted, there are very difficult problems in San Francisco. It's unbelievably expensive. So I think a lot of people think it will be a, a leveling out of where people are located. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Silicon Valley isn't the you know the mighty force that it was before going mm. forward.
1: Yeah, I mean it feels like distributed really I don't know. It's maybe it's just my my bias, but it feels it's it's possible to create value, build valuable things anywhere in the world. Like I'm sitting here in Kuala Lumpur, KL, talking to you. You're in Seattle, but you technically yeah. work for a San Francisco company. Uh, yeah, a German utility
0: I mean, too. So <laughs> yes,
1: for a German utility, I recently just syndicated around for a Paris-based crypto startup from KL. Which yeah. is it's the the world the world is uh, moving in a very interesting kind of ways, I guess. But as like you yeah. said, it's it's, it's hard to deny those kind of network effects. And I guess we'll talk about more of that later. Um, so a little bit more about your background. Do you identify more as a Malaysian or more British?
0: It's hard. Um, I think initially I would identify more as a Malaysian, but I think as I've spent less and less time in Malaysia over the last 20 years, I think yeah. I'm gravitating towards British now. But now that I'm gravitating towards Britain, I'm also living in America. So <laughs> who knows how long that will yeah. last? Yeah, it's, true, it's hard true. to say. I think they have a term for people like us, right? It's like we're third culture kids or something like that, where you really have that. moved around right. in your youth. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, and you don't feel like a particular sense of, of being in one place or another.
1: That's true. I, and honestly, you know, being in Malaysia for quite a few years now, you meet a lot of people like that. Like I've met so many Malaysians that are Malaysian, but they've never lived in Malaysia most of their right. life until like they're they're an adult because because of some circumstance like COVID they're forced to come back right so it's very very interesting place that uh it's a very dynamic place that come you know it's a smaller country so people come in and out um and it's I guess it's just the nature of the country right so
0: yeah well, how do you uh, identify
1: that's a good question uh <laughs> it's 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 a very easy answer because uh, growing up in America they do an amazing job of brainwashing you so <laughs> America first classes, right <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we call it, I don't, I don't think we call it civics, but like they, they make you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I still could say that. It's right. sing the Sydney National Anthem, um, you know, all the memes of USA, USA. It's, it's you know, it does not number on you. It's, it's hard to let that go. So um, American first, then then Vietnamese second. Uh, that's it. Now that I'm spending more time in Malaysia, like you said, I, I do relate. Also, many of the Malaysian aspects. Um, I, I do have to remind myself, you know, I'm not really a local though. So, uh, but so yeah, like you said, third, third culture kids, I guess. Um, So you also, for your other experiences, you had done a blockchain company in the energy space as well, called Verve. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I worked there as a product manager for a couple of years. And yeah, curious to say you just invested in or curious to hear you just invested in crypto. Yeah, very interested to see what you think. I think it's a fascinating space and I have a lot of problems with it from an environmental standpoint, but I think definitely, you know, huge shifts in the future.
1: Definitely happy to talk about that. Uh, yeah. but let's, let's, finish up. Let's, let's finish up your background. So you also did some cult consulting for a while. Um, I think one of the more interesting things you worked for the mayor's office in New York City at one point
0: yeah well it was a a very small position as an internship um just after i graduated i knew i wanted to work in the energy environmental space um had moved to new york because i thought it was my you know last chance to be working in the us uh with a student Mm. visa they have this optional practical training hangover so once you graduate you can exactly you can stay in the us for another year and i was like well where's the most exciting place to go it's new york inevitably. And so moved there for a year mm-hmm. and, and did a number of jobs in New York working in energy and environment. But that was fun. That was a that was
1: really great. Yeah. And uh, well, the reason why, well, because you studied at Harvard doing a BA in chemistry, physics and English literature. Was that three <laughs> yeah. majors?
0: It's uh, It technically counts as one degree because Harvard doesn't okay. let you do a double major. Um, but because the subjects are so disparate, I effectively had yeah. to kind of do the course requirements for, for both chemistry and physics, which was its own degree. And then English literature, which was its own degree as well. Um, but so te- I have, technically you have, the credits. I have uh, more credits than I, I would normally have. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think that's very underrated because I tried to do a history degree and an economics degree at the LSC, And my God, right. coming from an American, um, liberal arts college that does not prepare you for how rigorous that is, (laughs) it is very hard to do reading and something very technical like mathematical. Um, So that's, that's quite impressive. Um, Then later on, you did your master's of policy energy environment in UCL um, back in London. So at that point, how did you know you were interested in energy? Like, was that before university or during university you kind of discovered this?
0: Yeah, I guess I'm one of the strange people, and I think less strange now because energy has become very hot in in the last couple of years. Yeah. But you know, even through school, um, high school, that is, I knew I wanted to work in the energy sector. Um, had always been interested in climate change, and could see what the science was saying. It, It seemed totally Mm -hmm. inevitable that we would have huge problems with how we generate power um, and energy, and particularly renewable energy, seemed to be the inevitable solution eventually. Just a question of how long we take to get there. And so even when I decided to study chemistry and physics, I knew I already wanted to work in energy and climate change. Um, I just thought the best way to get a foundation, if you will, in that was to really understand what what is ultimately chemistry and physics at the end of the day um, and then how we solve those challenges um so yeah i Mm. did that and went back to the uk realized that actually all the technical solutions were not necessarily the be-all and end-all and we oftentimes (laughs) need economical commercial um you know business friendly solutions to to drive change and that's why i i did the degree in economics and policy of energy
1: that's it sounds like a very logical way to approach it. Um, I mean, it's almost like you're choosing a fixed point and then you're kind of working backwards. It's it's almost like engineering in a sense, in a sense, the way you kind of decided to go about your degree. Um, But maybe we get a little bit more existential. Like why, (laughs) why was that the most important thing for you to focus on? Like solving this for humanity? Like why, you know, I don't know. Like, You decided to do it, but why, why, you know, what, what's the reason behind that?
0: You know, I don't know, and I'm actually I'm I'm very curious at what motivates other people as well, because for me Fair. it always seemed like such a inevitability. It's like this mm. is the most important problem. If we care about other humans and and yeah. humanity as a whole, this is yeah. you know what well, one of many significant problems that we need to work on, but yeah. certainly one of the most most significant ones. Um, but I think what was also interesting about um, energy in particular renew- renewable energy at the time was that you could see the economics for it play out in the long term so it wasn't necessarily like um, a, a job where you have to be a martyr and you're committing yourself to being in the nonprofit sector of the voluntary sector for the rest mm. of your life because you're trying to serve humanity it's also a place where you could potentially have you know economic benefit and i think that took a very long time to play out but Yes. This year, last year, um, and I think the years going forward will really show that that will be true. So it's been really yeah. fascinating to see. Yeah,
1: I think you had a very interesting cycle because that, that at that point in time when you were a student issues in energy, that almost was like the first quote unquote, golden age of clean tech, right? A lot of PE was kind of getting into it. And there was a lot of hype around it back at that time, around the 2010 times. And I know a lot of friends yeah. had equity doing, doing this at the time, but it's exactly what like you said. It didn't really manifest till maybe another decade later. So like, it's yeah, like after now the crash it's, it's, and everything yeah, fell apart. Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For um, sure. did, you, did you have any insights as to why it didn't take off as fast as it did?
0: I think, you know, a lot of people in the industry point to two components. I think firstly, the technology wasn't as mature as it needed to be. And I think there was a lot of fingers crossed, and let's hope it yeah. works out and we get the breakthroughs we need. Um, I think we're in a much better position now, but still a lot of technolo- technological. Um, breakthroughs that we still need to see specifically for for other technologies like hydrogen and carbon capture Mm. things like that but i think the other component was actually from a public perspective there wasn't that interest in Mm. climate change you really had what was then a minority of people who were talking about climate change saying it's going to be a big deal but people didn't really i think it's hard sometimes to comprehend what climate change really means And i would say Mm. it's unfortunate that it's only been in the last few years where we really are starting to see the incredibly terrible horrific side effects of climate change that it is entering mainstream consciousness and individuals but also importantly corporates governments feel like we really have to do something it's not an option Um, so i think there's something about the psychological biases that maybe we find it hard to understand and act on things that we know will impact us in the future maybe this is like oh you should exercise when you're young because it would be Mm. good for you when you're 60 but you know only a certain percentage of the population actually do that because they're thinking about themselves in 60 years time and i think there's something similar in climate change right it was only until you see the wildfires the floods the hurricanes that people are really starting to act on it in a very serious way so i i would say that's what's changed
1: yeah, so it's a very good point. um Public perception, and I mean, it's you're you're correct that there's it's trending in the right direction. I, I recently did um, an ESG kind of corporate training for OCBC Bank, and uh, I did not know about half the topics only until I researched it. And, and there is like huge investments in the space, but it's almost on a pro- professional level. But it's it hasn't. I don't even think it has reached you know mainstream in a meaningful way yet. Still, like there's so much yeah. work to be done. Probably on. A, media consumption perspective or like i'm not sure how that you know plays out but it, i think it's, it's still very far from where it needs to be uh, but before we get deeper into that let, let's let's jump straight into you being a vc in silicon valley yeah um so if you're if you're not from the region or you haven't grown up in it it, it almost seems like a very mystical world for people it's, <laughs> it's some of the most valuable companies in the world uh, you know, Mar- America is really great at marketing and the PR story, the founder hero kind of thing. Um, so hopefully we can maybe demystify it a little bit um, for and maybe before we start that, you know, maybe you could talk about Eon uh, being a German entity, which is like uh, you could describe what it is. And I, I'm assuming it's some type of CVC structure, right? Because it's a big yeah. energy player in Europe, but now they've spun off an investment arm in Silicon Valley. So but what what is Eon? How is it structured and how does future energy ventures work?
0: Yeah, so E.ON is pretty much like most investor owned utilities, they are publicly listed, so they have shareholders that that care about the share price. Um, But they also have 50 million customers across Europe. So they're a pretty substantial energy player, mostly in Germany, um, also very significantly in the UK and various other countries around Europe as well. So they're a real presence there, and then have also one of the largest distribution networks in Europe. Um, which is all to say they're kind of focused on the customer and then also on the infrastructure that you need for renewable and the um, energy transition, but not necessarily in generation as well. And the CVC team has been around for over seven years, I would say, and has been investing in a typical CVC way and looking at new technologies, where's disruption going to come from, where should we play, how do we stop ourselves from being disintermediated and um, being overtaken by Silicon Valley startups, et cetera. So it's it's a, a very interesting challenge. And actually they started at a similar time to a lot of European CVCs that were also challenged with the same problems with um, yeah. questions around the energy transition and so on.
1: Yeah. So for for our audience who is not as familiar, CVC, the yeah. corporate venture capital. Uh, so those are big corporate companies who have, uh, I guess, typically traditional businesses that are very profitable and uh, it's very well done in the U.S. And I'm not too sure about Europe, but I know that there's quite a few famous CBCs in, in the U.S. And they've been lasting for many, many years. And it's uh, kind of a newer phenomenon in Asia. Uh, mm. it's, it's hard to get the buy-in from the you know, like, the real CEO and the board to commit. You know, most CBCs will die out in one or two years if they try it out. But, right. um, but it's, it's it's a very interesting what you say about uh, Eon specifically, cause I, I had a very hard time understanding them as a player. I mean, ultimately when I did the research a few months ago, I figured this type of infrastructure play, but yeah, you're right. They also have this kind of endpoint consumers that they deliver to the energy. Exactly. Um, but it, it almost seems like they're pushing a very hard narrative. And this, this seems to be, you know, common across all the energy players that they are pushing this renewable narrative, like, you know, X percentage of all are, is renewable, but then when you dig deeper, it, <laughs> it, I mean, te- technically it is renewable to some degree, it's like biomass, but like, I, I couldn't really understand, like, you know, is it a fully renewable company that's like, this, are you actually delivering all like renewable energy or, you know, is, 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 is it still just primarily just, you know, fossil fuels and this kind of stuff? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the reality is always a bit far from the aspiration and, and the hope. And I okay. think the the reality and I think the, the challenge actually of having 50 million customers is we don't have yet the energy infrastructure that can support 100% mm-hmm. renewable energy for the entire country. Um, yeah. So it's what every utility is is hoping for and, and trying to work to, towards and hoping we get there. I think um but yeah the reality is that we can't make it happen yet but i i also generally agree though i think there is plenty of greenwashing within the the general energy space and all the energy companies know actually that they need to say the right things because investors are incredibly aware of um the challenges facing fossil fuel industries you can see that in the stock prices um challenges from shareholders etc so I think all companies whether or not they they really care about being green have to position themselves such
1: okay so it's more of a do you, do you think are, are you optimistic and does it actually become self-fulfilling at some point or another or um does it depend on player to player some will be able to transition some will just keep being this old business that won't move or change
0: yeah i i, I do think so but i i think um it will be a slow transition just because even if you look okay. at our existing infrastructure you know 80 percent of our energy across the world still comes from fossil fuel and it will take Correct. unfortunately decades to to transition out and so i think a lot of the traditional players will still be able to get by for a very long time um yeah. but we'll we'll see how who, who emerges as the winners shall we say
1: are are you allowed to speak on a relative like is, there pu- is there public knowledge around the size of the funds of what Eon's investing in CBC. Like, I, I, w- I would say that it's a pretty healthy signal if these companies are doing large-scale fund deployments and maybe deal sizes. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. It's like, you know, how big are yeah. your deal sizes and how much volume are you doing? Because to me, then the more signals, like we are very serious about the innovation space and actually changing it, and at least getting the information to know what we could take from the private sector to put other other players to put into our own stack, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty public knowledge that we have over 50 companies in our portfolio.
1: Um,
0: Typically, we invest in Series A and Series B. I would say that's kind of the average. Um, And so you can extrapolate from that that it's a pretty sizable fund. I think we do publicly say it's worth about um, 250 million euros. So um, I think pretty standard for most VCs and actually CVCs as well. But what I would say is across the board, um we started investing you know f- 5 to 7 years ago but every day it seems like there are new announcements from new CVCs working in the energy sector around committing yeah. several hundred million dollars to energy investments uh venture for energy purposes so it's it's a really hot hot area so
1: yeah i think it's, well, it's I'm, yeah, I'm sure, great i'm sure you're following the the news and and the innovation in VC um i mean it's I think it's a very different space for energy. And I think, I think we have to take that into account. Uh, just how deals and how the, te- the tech is very different. And there's de- like, you know, the challenge of building infrastructure tech will be different from say like a, a software startup, right? Um, yeah. But you have the likes of Tiger Global coming in. And I think yeah. it's prob- pro- probably at this point in time, like for this year, they probably done two deals a day, something like this. Right. So and then, you know, if you tell me you've been working for five to seven years, but with 50 deals, how is there a reason why you're not moving faster? Or is it because of the nature of CBC or, you know, is, does that scare you? as you know
0: as a VC? I'm I'm very curious about these as they call new wave of venture investors so you've got the tigers but then you also have the hedge funds in New York that are deploying huge amounts of capitals really raising valuations across the board and well my my view is it's still early days I think some some of their investments I've looked at and thought oh that's that's pretty smart that's very interesting and some investments I've looked at and I've thought it sounds like you're seriously overpaying. So, not sure, you know, where the balance yeah. is. I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between as well. But I, I, you know, I would certainly agree. I think as a CVC, you are constrained by the pace of investments, the the type of investments you can make. So, you know, we don't have. I think the thing about CVCs, and to note that they are fundamentally different from VCs, which is that, sure, there's a financial return needed. But the main reason you exist is to provide strategic and innovate, innovation ideas back to, to your core company, right? So it's more for that reason rather than for chasing after financial returns. Sure. And for, for a Tiger Global, it's, it's completely the opposite. If they see an opportunity, they can throw billions of dollars yeah. at it. But for us, it doesn't necessarily make a difference whether we invest Five million a year versus twenty-five million a year, if the innovation value is still somewhat similar. So I think yeah. that's that's an interesting differentiation.
1: Yeah, I, I also host another podcast, and we actually did discuss this. So a good way that you could probably think about these crossover funds is that um, it's a, a LP as a, sorry, it's a I don't know, it's like a it's a service for LPs, right? So they the percentage of the AUM that they manage versus the deal size is so little. Right? So even if they lose on 30, 40% of the deals, essentially what they're creating is a basket of early stage technology companies. And you, you saw the rise of SaaS. You know, people thought like maybe 10 years ago that SaaS was only the biggest company could be a billion dollars, but we're saying that they're a few hundred yeah. billion dollars. So if you think about creating a basket of early stage companies, even if most of them fail, the, the returns is beyond 1000x. And that's like the only way to move the AUM of someone who's managing billions of dollars, right? So yeah. it's, it's they, they, they saw all these like Silicon Valley guys sitting doing series B, uh, being very, there was you know, no no effort. He was waiting for the A guys <laughs> to get over, the angels to get over, right? And they're just throwing the growth money and then they just yeah. blow up, right? So, so we saw all the big names now. So I think the the hedge fund, like true nature of typical you know, Wall Street guys, they saw the opportunity that came in and they're they're filling up the, the, the void faster. So um, it's, it's a very interesting time to be in a space. And if you look at a percentage of uh, money in VC versus the financial system, VC is a tiny amount, so yeah. I think we're going to see an like even crazier explosion of, of more investment in energy technology. And hopefully energy could be a beneficiary of that. So it's, it's something to think about uh, in terms of uh, maybe Eon, if they don't want to just do their own balance sheet, doing partnerships with other institutional money to even further along these tight, harder, deeper tech problems. Um, yep. But of course, it's a different conversation because there's always this moral hazard of investing too much money in deep tech, and it just and people get disenfranchised about it. They, they, you know, they don't believe in it. So it's it's a different space, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I, I would say we, even within the energy sector, and if you look at deep tech and hard tech in particular, there are a lot of corporate companies that are making serious commitments, and they're doing it a because they have a lot of money on their balance sheet they can spend. Yeah. So if you think about Amazon, Microsoft. Um, They've made a lot of commitments to investing in energy and um, I would say hard to abate sectors, which is typically where VC doesn't invest. And I think it's been amazing for the ecosystem. I think a lot of companies where five years ago, most investors would have looked at and said, no, thank you too much technology risk, Mm -hmm. too expensive, um, too much room for failure. People are now looking at it again and saying, okay, well, if Amazon is willing to back it and back it not just as a investor, but also as a customer, then we're going to put our money in because we really think this is going to be a systemic change across the industry. So I think the optimism in in VC has also spread over to the energy sector and um, climate
1: tech. That's great. And so as a CBC then, um, and maybe this will help earlier investors who are trying to get into investing or maybe entrepreneurs, how do you think about deal flow and how do you go about creating it?
0: Yeah, I think it's a a good question. I think will depend a lot depending on where you are in your stage of investments. So if you're Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, pre-seed, seed seed stage companies, you really just have to know the right people and the right networks, because a lot of the companies, especially nowadays, um, are really working in stealth mode. So they yeah. may have raised two rounds of funding from pretty significant investors without you even knowing about the company mm-hmm. or being able to find out right. anything about the company on the webpage or news media, et cetera. So if you're doing, I would say, the earlier stage of investment, um, you know, having the right networks and being around founders all the time is really critical. If you're yeah. a slightly later stage, then I think your networks are slightly different. Certainly if you're Series B, Series C onwards, a lot of your deal flow can come via other VCs, especially those that invest earlier in the funnel. And as their companies are looking to raise new rounds, they'll inevitably send you a deck over and say, hey, this is Mm still interesting for you. Um, And then, you know, what we don't do, but what is a phenomenon increasingly in Silicon Valley and other places as well as Venture Scouts, where you have people who may Mm -hmm. not be working directly with your company full-time, but actually helping you to source deal flow and look for entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. and, and direct good companies to you. So... As as in other areas, a lot of innovation within the space, but um, yeah, I think it kind of depends on where you want to focus and, and what your main strategy is. Hmm.
1: Uh, and as for Venture Scout, do do you typically see that these scouts get a carry, or how, how does that work out?
0: I think it varies, but that's that's certainly one mechanism that's used.
1: Mm-hmm. And wh- how about for for Eon? Uh, does is the brand name enough to carry enough interest to to get a regular? study flow deals or do you guys have to outbound as well
0: yeah we certainly do outbound so um you know me and my colleagues we certainly look at the industry and see what the interesting companies are specifically for maybe an uh, investment area or investment thesis we have so we'll reach out call to companies or ask for referrals things like that we get a lot of inbound as well i think i would say more in europe um, than in Mm. the us just because we're much more of a well-known brand name in europe And companies Mm -hmm. know us um and i think yeah that's definitely a a benefit of being a cvc because even if they don't want your investment money and sometimes that happens they want you as a customer especially if you're working in the energy space and of course i think energy startups have been you know a a challenging place to be in the past because if you're trying to sell to utilities you better have a very long runway because it's a long sell cycle. it's very hard. Um, yeah. it's a really challenging space to 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 sell into. so I think being a CVC so, is yeah. actually quite beneficial.
1: so for the the few years you've been doing this uh, specifically in energy VC uh, has have you seen the amount of deals increasing, the amount of startups being founded increasing, or has it been the same about what, what's the trend?
0: Yeah, I think definitely more companies getting started. It's also a really interesting phenomenon that I'm seeing, especially in Silicon Valley and sort of the adjacent areas that lots of people are leaving very nice jobs in the big tech companies, Mm. you know, the Googles, Microsoft, Stripes, Amazons, and looking to work in climate in particular and um, really starting to, to look at companies within the space. So there have been a lot of new startups that I think have formed in the last two years despite COVID as well. And I think the trend is only going to continue because there's more and more money now in place for for a lot of these companies
1: i mean it, there's i mean it's kind of sad that it, it takes money shifting to get the talent but i mean thank god they're leaving yep. optimizing buttons and and ad tech to to at least trying to save the world which i so i guess net benefit you know if, if that's what it takes i'll be happy to you know throw more money that way to to get the world in the, in the right direction but that, that's good to hear yeah um, absolutely do, you, do you up- Do you operate under a specific thesis? Or does that come as a mandate from Eon itself? Or how how do you think about focusing your investments and what you consider?
0: Yeah, I think as a CBC, it's probably quite typical that we we end up as a bit of a hybrid between the two. So some investments are made based on a particular investment thesis we have that maybe the business doesn't share, but we think will be disruptive in the future. Um, And then others will be very much spearheaded by you know, internal objectives or areas mm. that the, the um, core business is interested in.
1: Okay. And then uh, as when you're looking at these kind of deals, then what are you looking for in an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, I think it <laughs> again varies by stage, um, what stage of the company it's at. And there are kind of different philosophies on what you look for within the company, I guess, an entrepreneur is a subset of that. I think some VCs will say, we want to look at market size. We want to see potential. Others will say, we want to see technology and um, Mm -hmm. strong deep tech capability. And then others will say, entrepreneurs are the only thing that matters. If they're (laughs) not in the right space to begin with, then they'll find the right space eventually. Um, I think because we're a more strategic um, VC and because we have a bit more thematic investment focus, I think we probably lead with the market component and what the the opportunity is for that technology and what our thesis is for the evolution of the energy system. And then for entrepreneurs in particular, it really does vary. And I, I try not to find you know a stereotype of entrepreneurs that I think will be particularly successful because I think that has historically anyway paved the way for a, a real lack of diversity within... Um, within <laughs> founders, okay. because I think if you say, oh, that was successful mm-hmm. in the past and we want to emulate that, then you end up investing in the same types of people. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, you, you want founders that are clearly really committed to what they're doing because it's it's going to be tough and um, they're going to have to surmount very difficult hurdles, and I think you want to see that both in how they're interacting with you through the investment phase, how they're responding to your questions. Um, which are the investors that have actually really thought through their industry, and have a very thorough understanding of what the challenges are, and and have clearly thought through their value proposition in a clear way. Because I think some some founders, and maybe they'll be successful. I don't know. It's it's a very long game no. venture, so it's hard to know. But I no. think some. You know uh, founders start off with their idea and they're kind of beholden to it and they won't let it go and they just keep going mm. despite all of the other evidence around them and and so i think it's a bit of a mix of having conviction in what the future will look like but then also the willingness to be flexible and how you think about problems
1: yeah so so i mean from from your perspective because of your situation and your job it's it's more of market and product and then founder. And then founder, typically what you're saying could be, you're very open-minded about what that kind of looks like. And I guess it's probably more of a gut feel then. You'd feel it out by interacting with the founder and see how they are as a person.
0: I mean, I I try to, but we all have our biases, so.
1: Of course, yeah. (laughs) I'm
0: sure it it (laughs) works out in different ways.
1: Uh, not not to get too sidetracked then um, but you did mention about diversity how how much of a big issue is this for silicon valley what, what's the nature of the problem of diversity and i guess even as a woman uh, and also as an asian person well i don't know it's a lot of Asians in silicon valley but i don't know is have you faced any problems with diversity or d- discrimination like what, what's the situation really like
0: yeah um I, I would say it's been moving rapidly in in the right direction and that's a that's a great okay. thing um the the reality is I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that we do encounter are still male. And I don't know whether mm-hmm. that's a product and part of the fact that the energy sector historically has been very male heavy anyway. And um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's it's seen as a particularly, you know, sexy industry for for a lot of people. So it, it certainly attracts mm-hmm. a certain type of people. And especially if you need a background in engineering and, and the yeah. sciences, you know, if you look at the university graduates it always skews male anyway um, so i would say the, the vast majority unfortunately still of um, founders that we do encounter are male um, i think that is shifting and, and there are certainly some really great female entrepreneurs um, around and, and a growing number that i see every year so that's positive i i think that the question around you know discrimination and, and diversity is is a tricky one because i think it's been so much part of social consciousness and especially in the us and especially in i think europe that people are really thinking about it um so i think it it, people are very conscious of um trying to say the right thing and do the right thing um but i think there are still ways in which it does permeate you know um organizations and situations i think i i represent companies as a board member or board observer and Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time, I am probably the only woman in the room or in the meeting room, yeah. even if there's 10 other people in the room. So it's, um, it is still a, a situation where the numbers don't reflect the, yeah. the population. So we have a lot of work to do. But it's certainly something that a lot of people are, are very conscious of. And a lot of men as well are taking proactive measures to try mm-hmm. and remediate the situation.
1: In, in those situations, where you're the only woman is that a, a factor, or it just doesn't matter, and you're confident in yourself of just being in that kind of situation,
0: um, it's definitely a factor. And I think you have to, if you want to stay in the industry, move towards a stage where you're confident enough in yourself that that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it's you know something that that you are aware of, and I'm sure most women are aware of, and. Um, I think if, if you do want to succeed and if you don't want to move forward, then you just have to take it and, and try and, where possible, turn it into a strength. Or if not yeah. possible, then not let it bother you.
1: Well, it's also just being a, like a minority in America. It's, it becomes a part of your character, but uh, you have to grow beyond it, I think you know, yeah. to, to, to just become yourself and be in your own skin, regardless, even though you'll be treated differently no matter what you do or wherever you go. Uh, it's, it's just one of those situations. And it's a very uniquely American thing as a minority, so I, I kind of understand that. Um, but like moving to Asia, even though I'm the most foreign minority person in Asia, You know, everyone kind of looks the same and they don't treat you too much. So so it's a very different dynamic when you're out of that context. But when you're living that context and that's a reality, it is an actual real thing. And some of these conversations do make sense to me. So I I can appreciate where you're coming from. Do you feel Um, like a
0: minority in in Malaysia?
1: I feel comfortable. I am hyperly aware that I am a minority, but you don't feel it. You know, hmm. uh, but also I'm in a very specific bubble of people of certain types of jobs and certain types of status. Right. So it, like I think Malaysia is one of those few places where you could be in a bubble or in Singapore. Even But like, yeah. I lived in, in, in Bangkok and, and Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh, too. And no problems i mean vietnam obviously they they will know that uh, they think i'm a foreigner first of all they'll think i'm japanese or korean in vietnam and belize you think i'm chinese in america they think i'm chinese but in thailand i got mixed could be sometimes thai could be sometimes that so yeah. i was like oh, i'm always a minority but you just don't feel like people are pointing at you saying you're different which happens a lot in america hmm. and but this is more of a very personal thing growing up in that context and then i only could understand it by leaving it leaving the context so
0: yeah right yeah, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So let's just take a step back then. Uh, so you answered about, you know, kind of what you look for in an entrepreneur, maybe another way to go about it then is what are the red flags? Like, what do you say immediately at, uh, you know, avoid this person, avoid this deal?
0: Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's, it's probably quite similar to um, what I've said before, but because the energy industry, I think is, is quite unique. Um, market understanding is one of the things that I think is is really critical. So I definitely have come across entrepreneurs that are maybe a bit more optimistic about how the market will evolve, mm. but not realizing that there are a lot of um, sort of regulations in place that that will be hard to surmount or um, existing infrastructure in place that will be hard to, to work around. Um, so I think, yeah, I think market awareness is probably an, a major component just because the energy sector is quite unique um mm. yeah and i'm I'm sure i have my my other biases but you know try to try to see the the potential where where it exists
1: well the there there is the other advice from silicon valley investors that sometimes you need someone who is not a domain expert to actually solve the problem because of you know you, you have tunnel vision right so how, how do you think about that like i mean they they may not they may be overly optimistic or they may sometimes not be a domain expert but sometimes do you think that holds true in energy that where that's possible to come into it as like an elon musk and then solve it or do you think uh it's just it doesn't work for energy
0: i think it depends which part of the energy value chain you're working in and maybe this gets a bit technical um but i think if you're anything within regulated businesses, I would say, you know, a lot of the grid infrastructure falls within that category as well. Mm. Um, And particularly in US and Europe, where reliability and, um, you know, consistency of grid is is a major factor, I think you're going to be hard pressed to disrupt in those areas. But if you're selling a product directly to a consumer, or if you're trying to innovate, maybe on the more customer-facing components of of the energy sector, then I think you know you're, you're totally right, and you have a real chance to try and force the energy industry to rethink how we've done things mm. historically in the past. Mm-hmm. But I think the the challenge, yeah, I think the challenge with trying to disrupt things in the regulated sector and and with grids and so on is that. The, the customer they you're selling to is the utility and they're not going to be as willing to to be flexible or to think outside the box because that's just not what their priorities are
1: well that makes it a very precarious situation for the CVC arm because you're you're exactly trying to do that so you're bringing I mean like they give you a mandate to play I mean it's a, a small portion of the balance sheet probably and um, once things go through then how do you how, so say, say if it's very strategic, how do you go about pushing it into the actual main company then and adding value that way? Is, is that a challenge? Have you guys reached that stage where you've probably integrated new tech into back into Eon's grid infrastructure and utilities side?
0: Yeah, um, certainly. So um, I think we've probably had more success maybe further downstream. I would say that the successes on the grid infrastructure side are when working with startups that are supporting in operational capacity. Mm rather than kind of disrupting the business model or disrupting the way they currently do things. So maybe mm. it's around helping them do something they need to do and already do, but in an easier way. So I think the example that's often used is can you use you know, drone imaging to help with power line inspections rather than having to do it manually? So in the case mm-hmm. where they can see the value add, I think there's real potential there. If you're working on the other side, um, then we've actually just had a a pretty good success with a company that was in our portfolio that we invested in several years ago that was actually just um, effectively acquired by Eon. Eon now owns 80% of the company, but um, in those instances, I think you start off working with the core business colleagues to see what areas they're interested in. You know, what are the main pain points for them? What do they see on the horizon? Mm -hmm. And then you do your market work anyway, and you see what startups are filling that role or could fill that role in the future. And then you make the investments. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of, I would say slow matchmaking that goes on as well. So, you know, you present the company, you try and coordinate Mm -hmm. for POCs, pilots, pilots, uh, projects hopefully that moves on to a commercial project and then I think in a in an ideal case scenario you know they either have a very successful commercial contract or there's an acquisition of for some form
1: mm. yeah essentially at that point in time then if it's scaled up to the point where the, the the main company buys out a portfolio company it's it's closer to the realm of MA, right and then that, yeah. that's a whole different ball game and it's it's I think that's where a lot of startups end up disappearing because yeah. it just didn't probably, probably work out. But like, I, I guess uh, for, for some time it works out being you know a huge value maker for the company if they do it correctly. So that, that would be the upside if they do it right.
0: Yeah, definitely. And some companies too don't want that. Um, and I think that's, that's also mm. another interesting component of the startup CVC dynamics. Some people don't want to be bought out. They want to continue to be an independent, successful company. And a startup within yeah. the space, and maybe they think they can sur- surpass the the energy space, and maybe they don't want to be part of a large multinational yeah, corporate correct. because that that's yeah. not necessarily a fun way place to be.
1: Well, if that's the case, they, they should have never put put you know a CVC on a cap table because that's ultimately it's one of these kind of uh, goals: is you either get bought up or I don't know, unless they could solve a bigger problem and, and, and fully mm-hmm. disrupt it, but it's it's quite a tough thing to do, I'd say.
0: Yeah. Or you keep hoping to sell to other utilities. I think that's the, oh, yeah, the true. Other, I guess
1: or... some that matches better yeah yeah. Um, so maybe for some more practical advice for, for entrepreneurs, um, what is your take on cold emails versus warm intros? Um, um, what do you prefer?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think warm intros always better because you you invariably I think take it with a, a, a weightier um, impression. I think especially if you know the person and you know the person who's making the referral well but i think cold emails are also inevitable sometimes
1: and but you must have had some bad warm intros then
0: um i think i think sometimes you you try and read between the lines and you know i think i i'm probably guilty of this too which is that you meet a startup and maybe they maybe you like them but you don't think the technology is particularly great but you like them as people or maybe you knew them as people in Mm. the past in a different context and they ask for favor and you you try and do them a favor Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think i think you can generally read between the lines and see which ones are the really enthusiastic positive warm intros and the ones that are like hey i i want to introduce (laughs) you to someone
1: (laughs) yeah i see i see so there's a difference um it's just a matter of whether or not uh, the receiving end can can also interpret that too. So,
0: yeah. Ha-
1: have you gotten any really amazing cold emails, and if so, what what do they kind of look like? How are they structured?
0: Um. I would say, I mean, the the cold emails that I I definitely spend a bit more time looking at are the ones that have clearly done their homework and gone out of their way to both understand why we as a fund might be relevant for them, or why I mm-hmm. as an individual might be interested in their company. Um, so I think I usually try to at least acknowledge the effort that they've put into to those cold outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if I don't think it's a right fit, I'll invariably try to have a call with them and, and give them some feedback or help them mm-hmm. in other ways. Um, but yeah, I, th- I would say if you are doing a cold outreach, try and do your homework and, and make it a bit more meaningful.
1: And then what, what is your preference is, is like shorter, concise, or what's your preferred length or format? Do you prefer decks? you don't like decks. How, how do you like it you, to, to receive the, the information coming in?
0: Yeah, definitely I prefer decks because then you can actually see what the product is like and what they're selling and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's very hard to understand what a company is doing based on fairly generic descriptions, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's hard to to get a feel from a company just from a couple of sentences, and then I would say um, not too long of an email, but just try and make it a bit focused on what are the relevant mm-hmm. parts. I think if you're writing ten paragraphs, um, I'm not going to read it probably, <laughs> yeah. um, and I'll probably you know just assume it's it's not a very good founder or mm-hmm. salesperson if. if they're trying to get me to read 10 paragraphs at the beginning Mm
1: -hmm. and then uh to optimize the open rate is there uh, anything that titles have caught your eye, like in the email titles
0: (laughs) um i think i'd probably do fall for clickbait (laughs) Um, of course we are a human right (laughs) Um, yeah and um but yeah i think it can work both ways actually sometimes i'm like annoyed by clickbait so i'm like ah That was yeah. that was inappropriate i'm gonna <laughs> not respond yeah. maybe um
1: so so it has to be clever clever clickbait that's smart probably <laughs> to, it's a fine balance i guess
0: very fine balance yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so for my last few questions uh, if you could distill you know out of all your experience so far what, what what's the best advice you could give to a founder or company looking to get funded by a cvc specifically in the deep tech energy space
0: yeah um i think the it varies a lot by CVCs and CVCs are kind of a longer gradient of how close to um, their core company or, or the core business they are. If they are close to the core business, I think your best bet is to really understand what are the pain points, maybe even try to get some some supporters within the core business to, to really support mm-hmm. your technology. I think mm-hmm. that that is the best instance um, in many cases. Um, and then I think on... The other side, I think the the um the funds that are maybe a bit more distant from the core business probably function a lot like typical VCs, so okay. um, there's a bit more flexibility there in what you're looking for.
1: It almost sounds like uh, you're doing a SaaS sales cycle, but like kind of pre them using the product. You look for a champion. You try to. It has to be the right person as well who has the right access to the decision maker or it could be the decision maker itself if if you can get that high up but you want people actually using seeing the value probably reading about it and and then you you know approach onto the investment side with the right sales pitch then you show the proof that i'm actually using creating the value then hopefully it probably just ends up being something that that you know everything comes together then the deal is done right
0: yeah exactly and i think that's that's the best case scenario for, I think, a lot of CVCs, where you already have a partnership in place. But then you're you're mm-hmm. totally right. In in those cases, your sell cycles are years long for, for getting yeah, an investment very long. because yeah.
1: But I would imagine in this space, though, because of like the nature of the tech, the nature of the problems, uh, and and the customers, I would imagine you know you start a company, but it's only maybe more than possibly two decades later, where it becomes extremely valuable, right? So it just probably, probably takes longer to create value in this space.
0: I think historically that's certainly been been true. I think that's already rapidly changing. And okay, hard to say how much of that is because we're, frankly, in a bit of a bubble at the moment, I think, mm. anyway. I think people will, will contest whether that's the case. I think there is companies that are getting very high valuations that probably warrant it, but I think there's also a lot of yeah. froth out there. Um, but I'm I'm seeing a lot of climate and energy companies that maybe started a year or two years ago that are already getting very significant valuations. Um, so I think the landscape is already
1: changing. Well, value and value created is very different. Valuation and value created. Is very yeah, hundred percent. Right? So if you, if you so ultimately, if you look, I mean, if you if you do the homework, you go down to the person who actually is consuming and using it. They're raving about it. It's, they're probably onto something where it makes sense. You know, there's that's like you said, the froth is making future expectations way bigger because, because to a, to a degree, it, it what the trend of what we've seen for the past ten years is more meaningful than what we saw in the the tech bubble in the '90s, right? There are actually companies right. who are proving proving that. So, but um, yeah, it, it's it's still to be seen. Uh, if this is going to implode or hopefully manifest to a new world, brave new world, right? So we'll see.
0: And I think what gives me pause and what I'm a bit concerned about is I think it's fine when you're operating within a VC world where, you know, hopefully VCs and private equity investors are trained and know what they're doing and know the risks involved and know that a bubble is very likely. I think what concerns me a bit is that there have been a lot of, um, Publicly listed companies, either through SPACs or IPOs, in the past year or two years, where yeah. retail investors are now putting in their money and thinking it's a it's a sure bet, <laughs> and thinking you know you can extrapolate from history. I, I'm I'm a bit concerned that that's not the case, and the fallout will not be for the venture industry because they got their exits and they got their money back, mm, but correct. it will actually be for um, retail investors, which I think will be a very sad development. Mm.
1: So you're this is the bubble you're alluding to um and and you're right you know this, this the quote unquote smart money they get in early get out early and then yeah it, only the bubble comes in with the later stage money than a retail um so that, that'll be very interesting if that does play out it's gonna see to shape regulation and how that affects the the, the tech industry in general be very very interesting i think um i, I still haven't put my mind where, where i believe this is going to be i i still yeah. think it could extend a lot further. Like I, I've, th- I've looked at the S&P and the Dow for so long. For the mm. longest time, I think it's supposed to like correct in a much more meaningful way, but it hasn't. It's just like yeah. a ship going up. So I don't know. You know, it's just, I'm just going to keep uh, holding on and uh, yeah. hopefully it doesn't cra- crash too hard later on.
0: Yeah, I feel the same
1: way. Would, would you ever consider spinning off to be a single GP and do your own fund?
0: Me personally? Um, yeah. Not not right now because i think there's still a lot to to learn to explore Mm. but you know maybe in the future certainly certainly a possibility Mm -hmm. Um, well yeah i mean i think the benefit of that is i think you get to make the investments that you have strong conviction in right um Mm, and i think the reality of a lot of vcs depending on how they're structured and you know what the management team or the gps are like is that you can be in a vc for a very long time but actually not be able to invest in deals that you think are, are really exciting or um to really support the founders you want to support and mm. there's governance structures that are different for lots of funds but i think it's actually something that if you are thinking of entering bc to be very cognizant of it's how our decisions make and made and mm. how how much influence do you actually have and in, in what in investments you're making
1: that's a very good point. So even if you're approaching a VC to get investment, you need to be speaking to the right person because someone the person the person you talk to could love you, love your company product, but doesn't mean it's going to get pushed through as a deal, right? So it's, it's, it's being aware as it's like a typical sale, right? You know, you have to yeah. know who to talk to and you got to talk to the right person in the right way, then then it kind of just well, maybe will happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. But I would also say that um, a lot of firms are structured such that even the more, quote unquote, junior people, are doing the bulk of the deal sourcing anyway. So by the time hmm. the senior people look at the deal, it has been filtered through and, and approved, if mm-hmm. you will, by by mm-hmm. the associates okay. or the principals.
1: Fair enough. Uh, if, if you have time, you, you wanna talk about energy?
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, so what fascinates you most about the energy space?
0: Um, I think it's really going through, I mean, everyone says it's called the energy transition but we Mm -hmm. are, I think, really at a tipping point of how we are going to move towards net zero and what are the technologies we're going to use to get there. And um, I think it's always fascinating to be in a space where you really don't know the answer. And I think some people will say, Mm -hmm. oh, it's going to be hydrogen that's going to support a lot of our our storage capabilities or other people will say it's batteries. But we really don't know, frankly, at this point, and we don't know what the Mm -hmm. technology breakthroughs are going to be. And we don't know what the Um, demands are going to be. So it's really working in a space that I think has a huge amount of impact on our economy and our society, but has a lot of unknowns. From an intellectual point of view, I mean, as we discussed already, I have a background in chemistry and physics. So I've always found the technical components of an energy system Mm. also really interesting. And it's, it's frankly just really kind of fun sometimes when you're able to talk to founders and you're using the, the fundamental, either, you know, chemistry ideas or physics ideas mm. to to understand what it is that they're trying to do. And mm. in many case, start from from core principles and build up for what's possible from there.
1: And if, uh, just for the audience, could you clarify what is net zero?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think the industry is um, talking a lot about this, but I think maybe one Definition is the idea that we will get to a future where our total emissions are net zero. And that can be achieved in a number of ways. One is that we have a fully non-polluting um, energy generation system. So we only have renewable technologies, for example, you know maybe nuclear as well. And there aren't any um, technologies that emit carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. There is also another world where we continue to emit greenhouse gases and carbon emissions, but the solution and the alternative is to actually either try and take out some of that carbon um, and greenhouse gases from the atmosphere through things like negative emissions technologies, direct air capture, you know, credits, things like that. And so we don't completely get rid of fossil fuels, but we find technologies that enable us to still Emit fossil fuels while having mm. a net zero balance. So it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like accounting. You would say you kind mm-hmm. you can either not earn any money and not spend any money, or you can um, spend some money but have to to earn it as well.
1: It it almost seems like uh, we're at the cusp of like we're entering sci-fi almost, right? Where you know you harness the energy completely of the stars around you, and I mean it's just like the first beginning phase of that, right? So I could see why why it's very exciting.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, maybe we'll get to fusion technology. I think if we figure out fusion, then a lot of our problems will be solved. But I think we've been saying yeah. that for decades now.
1: Well, every thirty years, right? It's solved yeah. every in the next thirty years. So uh, always but, thirty years and, away. Yeah, and I, I've been reading the articles more recently on fusion, and uh, they they say that's changing, but <laughs> it's it's the, the yeah. same narrative repeating. <laughs> Um, but I mean, there, there is meaningful progress. I, th- I mean, if we're talking about fusion specifically, I think we need to wait for ETER to, to go online, which is the yeah. international organization of, it's like 30 something countries put together money to develop Europe, nuclear yeah. fusion in France. Yeah. So that, I think once that comes on, it's easier to see where it really lies. But I mean, that's just a crazy investment into, into the future. And, um, uh, I don't, I don't know if that's going to turn up something meaningful, but I hope it does. Uh, but you know, with big. this in mind, what, 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 what do you think is the most important problem to solve? in like this context we're talking about, right? And this transition. What problem is the most important one to solve in the en- energy space today and now and why?
0: Yeah. Um, the sad reality is I think there isn't an answer to that question <laughs> just because um, mm. the challenge of climate change is precisely that there is no silver bullet. There is no one solution that will do the majority of the heavy lifting we need to decarbonize not just our energy sector and our electricity sector, but if you look at cars, transport, mobility, airplanes, buildings, we need, um, and, and not even just buildings, but also agriculture, how we get our food, yeah. all of that is part of the carbon ecosystem. Yeah. And if you actually look at the breakdown for where carbon emissions come from, it's you know pretty well split between Electricity generation, yeah. buildings, transport, um, agriculture, and land use, and so there isn't, you know, an easy solution. I think is is the long but, you know, honest viewpoint from from my side.
1: Yeah. So, but let's 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 take a stab at it because you talked about net zero, and there's different beliefs on how to solve net zero. Right, you know, you either can keep, you know, emitting, and then you pull out, or you just somehow have a massive technology breakthrough where everything's just zero. Um, what, what is your take then? You know, the short and medium and long term of how this unfolds, because as an investor, you have to kind of engage with this, in, you know, intellectually and best guess, and based off how things change, mm. you adapt and change. But what, what, you know, say for you personally, how are you seeing this unfold, short, medium, long term?
0: Yeah, I, I would say short term and I think Tesla is a huge part of this, it will be mm. the electrification of mobility and in particular light transportation. That mm-hmm. already is, I think, um, taking off on its own, even without you know additional subsidies and, and support. There are still subsidies in place, to be sure, because I think people are trying to accelerate the transition. Um, but from an economics point of view, I think it's already very much trending in the right direction. Um, so I would say transportation is the first to... to decarbonize. The other component that I think you know we still really don't have a good view on um, that I'm personally very interested in is around buildings and um, maybe less relevant for Southeast Asia where it's, it's really hot, but actually a lot of North America, Europe spends um, a huge amount of carbon emissions and energy keeping warm in the winter. And there mm-hmm. are technologies already that can help us to decarbonize and use electricity instead of natural gas. But mm-hmm adoption is painfully low and there is no real concerted view for how we will get there. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's a bit troubling because it's such a big piece of the puzzle. So I think the electrification of heating and buildings will take a, a longer time, but also has to get there. And, mm-hmm. then, um, and then you have the quote-unquote hard-to-abate sectors within agriculture and industry. Mm-hmm. I think historically I would have been a bit more bearish on it and say, really hard to foresee a a way through but i think technologies like hydrogen and a lot of um, innovation and technology breakthrough are already starting to happen i think we we should be mindful of the fact that even though there's a lot of talk about hydrogen at the moment i think commercialization of hydrogen is well over 10 years away Um, so there will Mm. be some technologies that we can already use and do already use but um any deployment on the scale that we need and we um, will will require will be at least 10, if not 20 years out. Mm-hmm. So those are just some of the technologies. But I think from uh, electricity generation point of view, I think solar is already taking off in, in a really big way around the world, not just um, Europe and America, but you know, great to see in places like Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Asia gradually. I think Asia, well, Southeast Asia in particular very slow. is still very, very slow. slow. Um, yeah. China's been pretty good, but yeah, Southeast Asia is, is, is painfully slow. Um, yeah. So we'll see.
1: But I think it's what you alluded to because I did another podcast with my friend who w- worked in private equity and energy. And the, the main problems is that we're still working on like post-World War II technology for energy production. So it's just even further behind than developed countries. It's just, yeah, for Southeast Asia, it's just... Even more potential and room for growth, especially like you know, in the next few decades, sixty percent of the middle class is going to be coming from Asia, which means yeah, the rise in consumption on across the board, you know. So it's very interesting that you say the electrification, right? So that that's the easy first step that could leap in many areas. Uh, then then it's just more like modernizing the industrial complex with more efficient energy, which is the next chain, and then um, you know that that's going to be very disparate around the world and maybe some technologies could help us there faster but there are some things I don't think you can move like a full grid and moving that to, it's like you know maybe, maybe, I don't know maybe I'm wrong because there's like 5g every country seems to want their internet so' it's, maybe it's just more yeah. of the use case of people wanting it they don't realize they take it because it's very government driven right you know a lot, a lot of these countries that energy is is you know subsidized or low cost or mm-hmm. it's it's a given that it's not like one of these private things you you want and demand um, but it technically should be I guess you know
0: yeah and actually that's one of the trends that i'm most excited about it's that i think historically as you said between the utilities the oil and gas companies frankly and the governments Mm -hmm. there's been this kind of view that It's out of your hands. It's on a huge infrastructure level. You can't really do anything about it. But what's an amazing thing to see in Europe and the US in particular is the number of people that are actually taking it into their own hands and they're doing things Mm. like installing solar and Mm. having battery systems and backup systems. And there is a range of motivation behind it. But um, on the side of both individuals, but actually also corporates who who are really moving the needle on this, um, there is the ability to actually say, I don't need to wait for the the grid to do this. I can do this on my own. So yeah,
1: if if I have enough money myself, you know, if I buy a nice place like you in Seattle, I I would try to do it off grid completely, assuming I had the resources, right? Just rainwater, streams, whatever. Then you know, solar. um, Assuming you get enough sunlight for the year, right? But it would be very a very nice idea that the the way that future homes could be built is that it's just completely off grid, but powered by fully renewable technology. And that that, that, you know, that that makes a lot of sense also if you want to become an interplanetary species because you need yeah. the kind of tech to be self-sufficient anyway, right? So it's, it's, exactly. it's along this vein of just moving humanity forward, I guess. Um, so if you were to do an energy startup yourself, what, what, what kind of team do you think you need to be successful? Because you're on the investing side. So imagine you would know you would need to be successful to build uh, from the ground up and what kind of persons you would want on your team. What would that look like?
0: Yeah, um, I think you need a balance because the energy sector in in, in particular, I think is quite interdisciplinary. So I think you want someone with good market policy, business acumen, can really think through business models and where the potential revenue streams might come from, where the opportunities Mm -hmm. might come from. Um, But then depending on what kind of startup you're looking for, um, you definitely need some kind of strong technical capability. The reality is I think most VCs are looking for either hard tech or software technologies. So mm-hmm. you want someone with you know, technical capabilities or deep knowledge of the battery that you're trying to create or um, the new solar panel technology you're looking to create mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I think having that balance between both good technical capabilities and then also market awareness mm-hmm. and flexibility in, in business models is really important.
1: Which means uh, fundamentally, if both people are very capable, I mean, if these two pieces, like, you know, these two different domains, uh, if uh, it's very hard to find one person to do it, but it's very possible to do it with two people who are competent, probably.
0: Yeah, I I would definitely say so, hope
1: so. But are you funding people with bigger teams, or what's the average team size for your deals then for early stage?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we, We typically invest in companies at series A, series B, um, Mm -hmm. and then a number of our companies are even later stage than that. So I think by the time we're looking at companies, they probably have between 15 to 20 people in the company already. So it's pretty substantial and they have, you know, different categories, different groups. So you have like a product team, a technology team, um, business team. And so you, Mm -hmm. you can already start to have that kind of specialization.
1: In terms of founders, how many usually average?
0: um i think between two to three i would say is 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 still the norm yeah
1: Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about the risks to energy and i would imagine they fall into regulation political and sentiment right um as an investor how do you think about managing or mitigating these types of risks, right? And I guess each risk is probably different. You know, the regulation piece is probably very different from what the public thinks sentiment-wise or versus the political risk of how the sentiment works with politics too, right? So, you know, when you're investing or say if you talk to a founder and give advice on what they're building, how do you go about managing that risk?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I would add the, depending on who you're selling to, I would probably add the, the challenge, as we've already mentioned, of selling to utilities and energy companies in particular, um, because typically they're incredibly risk averse, have very long sales cycles. And so mm-hmm. if you're an energy company, you really need at least like two years runway to make sure you can survive the the process mm-hmm. of, of meeting a customer and actually being able to sell to them and then fulfill True. the project. Um, yeah. So I, I would say that's, that's a key one, too. Um, on the customer sentiment side, again, it depends very much on where you are along the value chain. Um, but if you are on the more retail-focused end, I think because of the the changing customer sentiment that we've already spoken about, I think there's there's a lot of interest and a lot of demand for <clears throat> for um, companies and and products that are working in that space. If if you're in a hardware heavy space, I think that's where the energy sector can be a bit tricky, um, which is that you need really significant amounts of capital to to build your product, to distribute your product and to gain customers. And then I think your your financial risk exposure is then at that point pretty high because you need not just equity financing, but invariably mm-hmm. debt financing, project financing um, to, to really grow your business.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah there's,
1: there's there's not much you could do on the political side then. like for example, if there are, like there's a few examples of countries just completely cancelling renewable projects or like a nuclear this kind of thing. so do you do you try to avoid can you predict this at all or you just what, what do you do?
0: Sadly not, and I think you just try to mitigate your exposure. I think if you are investing in a startup that is expecting or um, dependent on significant regulatory changes, You have to be really careful um, and make sure they have sufficient runway or actually just other revenue opportunities that can Mm. keep them going. Um, It it is not impossible though because I think we've seen huge regulatory changes around the world in the past years. It usually takes several years which is obviously not the typical runway for a startup but um, if you in it for the long game you better have a business model that allows you to make money in the short term even if that's through grant funding or Mm -hmm. you know philanthropic funding um whatever it might be to keep you going um, until you can actually get the regulatory changes that are required to um, to deploy the business model that you really want to deploy
1: Yeah. So essentially, um, diversify your revenue streams if possible, which is a big counterintuitive for early stage, because usually a lot of VCs I talk to, they want to see focus in one business model where you do it really well. Because if you split your resources, you probably do nothing. Right. So um, but I guess that kind of makes sense against regulation. Um, There's there's no other way to actively, you know, manage it through like lobbying or any kind of things or just not possible. (laughs)
0: Um, I think possible if you're a really large company, but if you're a startup, you should be spending your money and your resources in a different place. It's just too, too long and painful a process.
1: Yeah. So maybe find someone like Ian, who has probably deep pockets and connections to the government to help out.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure we could promise that even for for ourselves, (laughs) but um, that's
1: true. Exactly. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So which, I mean, so we talked about nuclear fusion briefly. We talked about solar. There's also geothermal. Um, in general, though, what do you think has the highest chance of being an actual panacea for humanity?
0: Um, I think it, I think ultimately we we need a combination. Um, and right. nuclear fission is very unpopular, but it's probably the most well-established technology that okay. can okay. provide um, the, the, the kind of baseload power that we need. So I think we need more nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion would definitely be a panacea, <laughs> um, yeah. but I think as we've discussed already, is probably, um, you know, who knows when that will come in. I don't think we can rely on it. Yeah. I think actually there's um, a certain moral hazard that I, I'm a bit wary of sometimes within the community that says, you know, it'll be okay once we have that technology breakthrough, then we'll be okay. And and you see it a lot in things like hydrogen as well. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, we'll figure out hydrogen. Once we figure out hydrogen, then we'll be okay because we can decarbonize the economy. But I think the question for me is always what happens if that doesn't happen? And we've yeah. just spent 10, 20 years building towards a future where... Um, there are no strong alternatives. So, I think we will need a diversified approach. And solar and wind is already extremely well developed and I think can serve a huge amount of our energy requirements.
1: Where does, where does that mentality come from? Like, you know, is it because you're coming from more of a scientific engineering kind of belief that technology solves it? Or is it just typical founder over optimism that it pervades across any personality type?
0: I think, I think it comes from two directions as well. I think from the founder side, you have to have the conviction that the technology that you want to create is very impactful, maybe not the most impactful, but impactful enough that yeah. you can build your business around it. So I think that's straightforward. But I think on a more holistic societal level, there are two elements. I think one element that I think you're, you're right to point out is the optimism in innovation and technology capabilities. The other one that I'm a bit concerned about with, especially with things like um, hydrogen and actually other elements of our energy system is, I don't know how much of that is actually the incumbents, either from the electric utility side or from the oil and gas industry saying, don't worry about this. We'll figure it out. (laughs) We can continue business as usual for the next 10, 20 years, but we still have a path to net zero. It will all be okay. We'll find a solution. But for the now, but for the time being, let's keep going as we are. And I think that kind of thinking is actually incredibly pervasive, more Mm. pervasive than, than I think most people would notice. And I think has already led us to where we are, which is a very difficult place already, and I think has the danger to, to lead us to um, a future where actually we don't get climate change under control. And that's a very real possibility.
1: And essentially, that's complacency. And are, are you saying at the point we still can be saved or is this, are we at the point of no return?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think about that um, almost all day. <laughs> um, I think we can be saved, but it will not be pretty. And I think that is mm. the major uh, challenge for us. I think yeah. as humanity, we can innovate, mm-hmm. we'll come up with solutions. I have no doubt about the fact that we will eventually find some kind of solution. But I think until we get there, it will be an incredibly painful process, especially for those who are not in positions of wealth and privilege. And it becomes a a, a deeply, um, I think, moral question about equity and, and how we think about society. I sometimes think about you know, climate change, and, and I, you know, I have a science background, as I decide, as I discussed, and part of, I think, a scientific training is thinking about the history of science and where mm-hmm. have there been paradigm shifts in how we've understood things, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, thousands of years ago, used to think the, uh, the earth revolved around the, sorry, the sun revolved around the earth, and then mm-hmm. there was a seismic shift, and then we, we think about things differently. Um, we also think about um, how classical and quantum physics changed. And part of what I try to think about as well is what are we fundamentally wrong about at the moment that we are not even aware that we're wrong about? Where is Mm -hmm. there that paradigm shift that needs to occur? And I think in some ways it's around climate and maybe it's not even about a scientific revelation, it's about a social awareness. And maybe the equivalent to something about something like um, slavery, right? 300 Mm -hmm. years ago, slavery was endemic everywhere and no one even really questioned it everyone just kind of said oh that's just how how things are that's how we continue um but now obviously we have our modern lenses and we're like oh that's abhorrent like how could those people just treat people like that and and not think about that and i i wonder whether we will think about climate change in the same way which is that how on earth do we have such horrific ramifications on other people in the world that were not ourselves and be able to just look the other way and and say it doesn't matter.
1: It almost sounds like you're rejecting the utilitarian argument, but like that's how how the world typically operates, correct? And you're, there's always going to be the percentage marginalized, but everyone goes on about their life and we don't care about them. What, what you're it sounds mm-hmm. like you want to come up with a solution that's all inclusive, almost like a utopia.
0: I don't think so, actually, and I think that the problem with climate change is actually that the majority um, will be really adversely impacted Um, Mm. and especially how things are trending at the moment and it will be the 1%, 2%, 5%, maybe 10% that are able to continue their their lives and do whatever they want because they have the resources and the capabilities to do so but actually you know 90% of of the world will be really badly impacted by the actions of of the few and I think we are already seeing that
1: one of my co-hosts of my other podcast has a, a thesis about climate change. He, he's from the Midwest, from Wisconsin. He believes the Great Lakes are become the new Gold Coast or whatever once everything floods over. And he's, his, his, his idea is to buy up a bunch of water rights and also to buy a bunch of houses along along the coast because everyone's going to move inland, essentially. So um, I don't yeah. know. It, it, sounds, it sounds like you're, you're – like, talking to you, it sounds like it seems like some really big changes are to come. It's going to come at a great cost as – to make the progress and to save things, but and honestly, it sounds like if you're a bit more pessimistic, most of humanity typically is reactionary to to these kind of problems. Like COVID, right? You mm-hmm. the, the amount of innovation in vaccine technologies uh, just it just happened so fast because of you were forced to do it. So it seems that perhaps we'll be in that position that we will be able to have a future, but it will come at a great cost. It seems.
0: Yeah, I think so, um, and. And we'll see i I definitely think that the changes will be more drastic than we can even imagine and i think that's what scientists are already saying you know the the heat waves and the wildfires that have taken place even just this year were outside of their prediction expectations Mm. and what i'm really concerned about are the negative impact cycles and um if you think about things like wildfires that are not only causing destruction to forests, but then also releasing a lot of CO2 and, and not having trees around that can then absorb CO2 in the future. And there are concerns about, you know, methane stores in the seas that will be released once um, more ice melts within the, the oceans. There are so many negative feedback cycles that I think we we don't even necessarily know about that could really accelerate the, the rate of change of climate change. And um, I think that's an incredibly terrifying world
1: um with that in mind then we we do need this panacea and is it is is entrepreneurship alone enough or will we need to do this hand in hand with government in order to make this happen
0: we've been hoping for governments to to take significant action I think for decades now um and I I absolutely think there is a place and a need for government because you can see that already in the grants that they've provided and the you know federal funding um, that they support for technology development. If you look at hydrogen, for instance, I think the industry wouldn't be as bullish about the technology if it weren't also for the fact that the governments mm. of you know Germany, UK, etc., have. Um, U.S. as well have committed huge amounts of money to developing hydrogen, so they're absolutely part of the solution. But I think to go at the rate that we need to go, we absolutely need entrepreneurship mm. and we need new ideas more. and innovation.
1: Yeah, so it actually would be good if government also fosters more entrepreneurship than too, then to to tackle from both ends.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And then how about how about this? Then would you? I mean, I know this is another utilitarian argument. Would it be better to have an authoritarian government who could do it faster, more efficiently?
0: Um, if they cared, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, but... if, if
1: you think they, they care about their population long term, of course, it's going to be at the expense of a the minority. They, they, they hmm. technically should make the decisions that optimize for the long term, which is all the security needs from, you know, food, safety, energy, and they, they would do it more efficiently. Um, or do you yeah. think it's possible that Western democracy can actually get over their, their, their nonsense that they're going through and, and actually make it happen?
0: Yeah, I think um I, I think the problem is not necessarily that the the governments are not willing to take action to to protect their population. It's that the action that they take is not sufficient to mm. protect their population. And even if they did everything they could, if the other major players don't do anything, no. then there's nothing that um they they can do to stop the situation. And um I mean you can see that in China, right? I think as authoritarian yeah. as as it will get, they've certainly made, you know, significant strides, not for not just for China itself, but actually globally for moving in the right direction. Yeah. But they also have more coal plants than you can count yeah. and are still opening them and um, have significant challenges. So yeah.
1: even I think well, in an
0: authoritarian government they can't quite do it.
1: That's fair. I mean, that's a very good point because people think China is a monolith, but it's not. It's, it's a bunch of regional power players trying to work in a one party system. So it's still very diverse in itself. And then uh, at the same time, it's the same problem we talked about earlier, old infrastructure technology. You just can't transition that in a day. And uh, but they do have to be forward thinking, because if they want to sustain their population, they have to be global, they have to have the relations so they can't do everything to piss off their neighbors and, and, and you know, like one belt, one road. They have to be politically aligned and people have to like them in order to engage with trade to support it. So it's 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 not as a black and white picture, as, as you point out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah I I agree. <laughs> But I think okay. things are also changing very quickly in China, and I'm a bit concerned yeah. actually about how uh, how things are changing
1: concerned in in what sense
0: um, well I, I think in a, in a number of ways um it seems as though there's there's greater consolidation of power around Xi Jinping, which you know ah, you can okay. have whatever yeah. view you want on him, but I think it, they're definitely trending I think in the more authoritarian way. Um, mm. and and a greater centralization of power and um yeah i mean i think there there are many things to be concerned about with regards to also what that means for a a global power system i think it's almost inevitable yeah. that we're trending towards a world where it's usa versus china and um it's a worrying thing to, well, to hold
1: for, for me a lot, a lot of my friends just laugh at me when I say this, but I think people tend to forget the lessons from history, like conflict and things can break out of the smallest things. Mm. Um, so I mean, any, anything is possible in this kind of new world we're entering, whether it's decoupled or more globalized or a combination of both. But but you're right, you know, like having a world power concentrated one person. I guess the main, the biggest argument I heard is like, you know, how long can he stay stay sane and healthy? Because that that's a huge huge problem if there are any any problems happen with one person of that much power right so mm. um at the same time of course the flip side of america is it's just a freaking mess right now too too much too much indefinite optimism of having too much wealth has led to where america is now where you can't get anything done either so it's i don't know it's it seems like you know it's the choices between two you know bad and bad
0: <laughs> yeah there's no yeah. optimal solution really yeah
1: I, I don't want people to think we're, we're getting too pessimistic about, about the world. So um, is there anything you, you would like to ask or know about or anything else you would like to, to talk about that's more uplift maybe? <laughs>
0: I'm curious what you think, um, both about climate change, energy, clearly it's a topic you've thought a lot about. And then I guess also, you know, what, what the outlook is for Not- us.
1: Not not deeply as as you but I've, I keep coming across this more and more the more interact with you know corporates or, or other founders in the space and I, I for me just energy has been a long-term fascination because my first job was trading uh, future energies so my first book I was reading right. on oil 101 and how it's extracted and I real I did realize this a very long time ago that like if if I had too much money I would love to somehow also do something energy because it's it's what Unlocks humanity. It's like you know, if you think about sci-fi, like having unlimited energy or something that you could just do, it just it just changes the whole world how it is. Right. And so, um, I know the the importance of it. I just my unfortunately because I, I did most of my career in Asia, we're so far behind in terms of these things. So like you know, just going through developing e-commerce and now now we're at a point where it's getting closer to par, and where a lot of innovation comes from Asia instead. Um, so it's it's it gets to the point where you know if I could amass more resources and I could spend more time thinking, I have more more people to help out to learn about it. But I I do care about solving energy um, climate change. I only it only came across my radar in maybe the past year where uh, I, I it's like you said all the new changes of, of you know uh, these breakout fires and floods and all these kind of things. Um, it's just I am more pessimistic because just, I just see everyone, everyone going about their daily lives. It almost mm-hmm. feels like you would need an external extrinsic shock factor either to, to make the change or like someone has to do it for, for the people, which is like the Chinese method, right? Like these people, we tell them what they need. This is how it is. And then we do it. It just feels like otherwise it just doesn't move. And it, it's like you said, a combination of entrepreneurship and tech. And the question, I guess, and all this just begs the question is like, what can we do now? You know, you're right. taking this from from the, the investment side and deploying the capital to the technology of how you want the future to be. And I, I look at it from the builder side, you know, how can I power more entrepreneurs and early stage investors to get interested in solving problems that actually matter for, for humanity? So I guess two different ends of it. But ultimately, it's, it's I'm still very far from it, but I, that's why I enjoy talking to people like you who are more more expert in it and at least give people, a, a, you know, a, just a small window into the world. And that's, that's how I think about media these days. You know, it's a lot of the influence and power of America is just soft culture. Korean culture mm-hmm. is just soft yeah. culture. Right. So I think, you know, if I could be successful in some way, in media and build media company and build media IP, it's more of like, how do you create stories and narratives on a global scale that have virality to let people know about the issues so it's, mm. it's just you know, it's coming in it from a different angle of maybe storytelling and this right. kind of thing and, and influence uh, but then at the same time you know the governments have to get their shit together and you need to invest in STEM. you need to invest in the hard sciences you need to go back to what peter Thiel says right you need to go to definite optimism you plan the future you make the future happen right mm-hmm. so and i think sh- china's kind of shifted away from copying things of indefinite pessimism to definite optimism where they actually now build, they are a world power. And America just needs to remember that, right? America needs to just wake up and say, yes, we can actually build. We can go to the moon. We can go to Mars. We can be interplanetary, which is why, you know, on a top line, it seems very, there's so many problems on Earth, but you kind of need this long vision of the future and that's what America's great at, vision, marketing, right? So yeah. it's, it's it's a combination of inspiring people into the field and you know mobilizing the resources and the tech. And then if if you have that kind of you know bottom-up and top-down pressure, is when they eventually can meet to squeeze, get the pressure to to get the solutions you need. Um, so that's how I think about it from like a, a bigger picture kind of thing, mm. and how I would angle. I don't know if that's interesting at, at all, though.
0: So. No, I I mean I, I think I think you're right. I think it, it needs you know both both kind of top down approaches and and bottom up approaches. And I think we are getting there. I mean, it seems like governments are starting to take this more seriously and people too. And I guess I assume that's the motivation then for you to start the podcast and, you know, create stories, narratives, as you say.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely part of it, and it's to to I mean, it I like I enjoyed this conversation. You know, it's hardly to say it's work. You know, and it's right. it's great to meet more talent and learn more. Like like the you know, being a founder is all about continuous growth and learning and improving and creating value for people beyond yourself or society to make a better world, right? So, and uh, that's definitely part of the podcast for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: Okay. So uh, it seems like energy, is that what you want to be solving for the rest of your life? Uh, is that what you're here on earth to do? Or what? what is your purpose?
0: I think so in one way, shape or another. And I think uh, the reality is we're not going to solve it before I need to retire. So <laughs> it <laughs> definitely seems yes. like a lifelong career.
1: And I definitely think you'll make some meaningful impact and strides. Uh, people always under, uh, overestimate what they could do in the short term, but underestimate what they do in the long term. If you keep chipping away at the problem, I know you're going to make a meaningful impact for sure.
0: Hope so. Let's see.
1: Yeah. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug before we wrap up? Uh, anything you would like to say? Or maybe you know, how can people get in contact with you?
0: Uh, no, I mean, if, if feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. That's always probably the, the easiest way. Okay. And um, yeah, I guess if you're listening to this and haven't really been thinking about climate change, please do, we, we need everyone, as we've just discussed, to really yes. start thinking about it, to, to take action. Even small changes, I think, from a large population really make a big difference. And I Correct. think um, we're starting to do it, but we need more action and, and more support.
1: Sorry, let's right, let's save humanity together. Perfect yeah. to end. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Eugene, thanks for your time today.
0: Thanks, Alex. Great to speak to you. bye
1: Bye. Hey, listeners. Thank you for listening to Jean's episode. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share this with your friends and family or anyone else who could benefit and give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what did we learn today? Jean is definitely one of the brightest people I've talked to so far. She's an amazing listener who can follow very disparate ideas and tie them back together cohesively. Probably the most important thing we can take away is how important it is to solve energy for humanity. Unlocking new energy paradigms and panacea in the long run solves the threat of human extinction and further unlocks the species' existence. However, it's foggy and complex and no one has a clear idea on how this happens. Of course, as we discussed, we need to revisit some old ideas to implement in the short term, such as nuclear fission, and hopefully that allows us to tackle other areas in decarbonizing in buildings, and construction, transportation, agriculture, and other forms of electricity generation. See you guys back here for next week's episode. UA out mm